Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I speak with Bradley Garrett. Bradley is a social geographer, explorer and photographer. He's author of Bunker, Building for the End of Times and Explore Everything, Place Hack in the City. I spoke to him years ago, Jen. Did you know that on my... Yeah, he uh... said... <laughs> Sorry. Don't interrupt, Jen. Did I? I'm in the middle of... I'm just... You know that some of the things I say to you... It's not like I'm actually saying it to you. I'm actually doing a podcast. Yeah, you said. Do you think I know what you're going to say before you're going to say it? Jenny, Jenny, I sometimes wonder if you know anything at all. What have you been doing all week? Um, You've got yourself a new pendant. Yeah, you're I thumbing like it. at your pendant. It's nice, isn't it? I've I, been having really nice meditations. You were clumping around here in last week. No. I was being very gentle. It was horrible. It was, it was you like were just hypersensitive. Like and now you've made me self-conscious. Good. It was like the Third Reich marching in here. Because it, I got a new dress and it goes so well with the boots and I can't wear it. You could wear it. Why don't you have a carpeted area okay. around? Why don't you put those puppy pads around that people have puppies that we themselves put them all around your area? And then you can clump and stomp to your heart's content in a bunch of puppy pee pads. So you've been having good meditation? Yeah. What about? They're not about anything. They're just real trippy. Go on. Yeah, they well, that's it. <laughs> well, it felt like someone was shining a torch on my face. Uh-oh. Isn't that weird? Yeah, I've had that. <laughs> was someone shining a torch on your face? <laughs> I had a flash of light happening right in the midst of my consciousness. Yeah. But no, no I had one that yeah. was like this. Like someone was doing that with a torch, moving it across my face. Is your new roommate a potholder? <laughs> no. What is your new roommate? Housemate, not roommate. What's the difference? We're in the same room if we're a roommate. Yeah, but hold on, no, Americans say roommate. But are they talking about like high school or college or something? In roommates, you know friends? In, in, in friends? You know friends? <laughs> yeah. I don't mean in real life, Jen, <laughs> where you don't know friends because you're a solitary person. I know. I mean, the show called that. Yeah. They're roommates. That's a show about roommates. Okay. <laughs> roommates. Uh, well, no, Angela makes costumes and clothes. Yeah, and is she going to make me a safari suit? Yeah, if you want her to. That's special. Do I want a safari suit? Why are you offering this? What's the catch? There wasn't a catch. We just we started talking about Angela and then she... You went, oh, she makes safari she suits. Makes, she wanted a safari suit. She's always making... She's got, like, mannequins and she's always sewing stuff. By hand? She's got three sewing machines. I sew things by hand. What? Well, say the kids tear something, I sew it up. My kid tore its trousers the other day. I sewed it up. That's good. While, while she was wearing them. Sewed the dress right into them. And then I was thinking about models and, like, high fashion. They, I feel they do that there. Yeah. You know, they sew people into clothes, don't they? Yeah. It's not practical for don't real life. Don't sew you into I'd like that stitched into my skin, like Buffalo Bill. Oh. I'm sorry. I, I think you should have that. something with a collar. Do you? Yeah. I think you're trying to turn me into a little prat. Because I think you want me sat here with a moustache in a <laughs> safari suit, don't you? No, either one or the other. I don't want anyone both. Well, what? so you've been pushing me to have a moustache. Well, you, start, you didn't do it. I was looking in the mirror today, and if you look closely, you'll see I've made a mistake with my shaving. Because <laughs> this massage is shorter than the beard. <laughs> Have a look at the middle section. Have a look at under the... Oh, the under the nostril. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit bald. Yeah, I slipped. 
<laughs> Good thing you didn't slip any further. <laughs> what, take out some of the cartilage? You don't want just a beard and no moustache. <laughs> no, like a Michael Evis yeah. from Glastonbury. Yeah, and you'd look kind of, can I say Islamic? You can say Islamic. The other day, check this out. Like this, I was in a shop with my kids and I uh, was getting some pre- a present for my mum for my mum's birthday. And um, the woman in the shop, she knew me and my wife. So she see one of my kids and goes, oh my God, she looks so much like uh, Laura. And then she see Mabel, like that was Peggy, and she said to Mabel, who, who do you look like? And, she, and we was like, oh, I don't know. And she goes, so who, who, who looks like Daddy? And she said, Zaid. And Zaid is a <laughs> teacher at a school. He's like a Muslim geezer from London. Yeah, that makes sense. I like how Zaid looks. He's got a good yeah, beard, thick like hair. You've got tan skin. He's from London. His heritage is Pakistani. He's got a big beard and long hair. That's So she thinks I look like Zaid. Yeah. I don't mind. He's pretty handsome. It's good. But the woman was asking for family resemblance. Yeah. Not just for people I, look I like look like. Do you remember when I looked like that person that's won Eurovision? Oh, yeah. That the, trans, the, uh, the trans woman, woman with a beard. Yeah. That was an interesting cultural moment for us all, wasn't it? Yeah, people are really into making comparisons online. Yeah, I've t- I've indulged it. I had a photograph of I, my girlfriend at the time had a green dress like that. I popped it on, <laughs> posted it. Never felt more happy to participate in a meme. It was it was easy. Yeah, it was easy street. All right, so you've been having meditations. It's really trippy. What do you, you keep saying? They're really trippy. It feels trippy. like my brain is doing weird things. Could it be an aneurysm? I don't know. What's the flashlight thing? That could be the Because I'm beginnings. facing out into darkness. You're facing out into the darkness? Yeah. What darkness? The sea. <laughs> you're, you're meditating, staring out into the dark, dark sea, and yeah. you're getting flashlights. Yeah. Do you live near a lighthouse? No. Are they intermittent flashes? No. Are they, do you sometimes the boats go by? Yeah, but I not close enough to feel the light on your face. Hmm. Jane, don't pretend to be more spiritual than me. I'm not pretending. You, do you think no I'm way. more spiritual? Are you jealous not of my flashlights? I've got. I've had my own <laughs> flashlights. Thank you very much. It's like a fireworks display in here. It's like the Fourth of July in my mind when I meditate. I tell you. Let's see what comments we've had on the Jocko Willink podcast. I loved that. I love that Jocko Willink is posting our posting our stuff. Do you? Yeah, he seems really nice. Which he's got a nice square chin. Do you want to get out of him? No, you said this last time. Jay Leno. No, Jocko over Jay. Jocko over Jay. Yeah. Every young woman's dream. <laughs> Jocko is reliable in a nice masculine My way. God, reliable. You'd be safe as ours. <laughs> you wouldn't need to worry about another thing on that front. Jocko, I think I heard a noise downstairs. I'm on it, honey. I'd have Jocko. I'd marry Jocko for the security. Of, I'm not scared of being alone in the house. I'm not scared of that. What am I scared of again? Just... Life, death, and yeah, everything it's in between. Anyway. Oh, no. I know, Jen. I know the rules. I've read the Bible. Jocko think... can protect you. Jocko, can... <laughs> Jocko, can you protect me from death? Yes, sir. I will do everything I can, Russell, to make sure that you uh, enjoy a perpetual life. Look, let's just get onto the comments. This one's from Scott Doucet. Jocko is incredible. Definitely not the kind of chap I would have expected to hear on your show, though. <laughs> Why not? I like him. Colorist Nisajuli. Very good advice and a better way to live our lives. Why be angry all the time? Kindness and understanding is always needed and you don't know what the other person is dealing with in their life. That was the bit where Jocko said if someone gives him abuse, he just lets it roll off him. He said he'd buy them a beer. He'd need a beer, buddy. He gives them something. He's like, he's Navy SEAL Jesus. Yeah. 
G.I. Jesus. Yeah? It's a good movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're low Jesus, would he sign up? The Jones Studio. Sometimes when someone cuts you up on a motorway and you scream at them, it's because they nearly killed you. Nah, there's no point panicking. Be like me and Jocko. Buy them a beer. That's what me and Jocko do, isn't it, Jen? Guess would me you? In. No. If someone bumped into you in a bar, you wouldn't buy them a beer, would you? Do you want a beer? Be like me and Jocko do. Why would you think I'd no, do? Overreact. You'd be nice, but with anger and fury in your eyes. And you'd grip them. Oh, the grip. A fury but- grip. <laughs> <laughs> the grip of fury. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. I think you would. You think I'd do a white sand? Yeah. Don't worry about it. We all make mistakes. Yeah. Hey, Russell, what you doing? You look like you need a beer. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I do. Thank you, Joe Jesus. Listen, a shout out. Outs. Look, by the way, by the way, you've already missed. You've missed the banter decanter. You didn't cue me. Comment. Well, if I don't cue you with a little cue, you won't pick it up. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, but you won't you, ride I, the mic. Have I, you ever heard that phrase? Yes, ride the mic. What does it mean? Just go with the flow. Yeah, baby. But I would have interrupted you with the comments, right? You were interrupting me when I was setting up a story at the beginning of the podcast about Bradley Garrett and how I enjoyed him. And when I was doing my other radio show, we talked about parkour and he talked about going into the underground. Our guest, Bradley Garrett, a story that was related to the content, instead of you talking about being able to see a light somewhere on the horizon and trying to pass yourself off as some sort of new lady Celtic goddess. That's well, what no. I am. No. This is what this is. Well, look at this comment says here. How much longer are we, the listener, expected to tolerate Jenny Mae Finn on the podcast? I demand a £1 per month refund on my subscription fee. And that is from Mr. May Finn, Galway Island. <laughs> oh, he invited me to his birthday. When is it? September 11th. <laughs> Jim, that is so bad taste. That's his birthday. That is so bad taste, not, Jen. He was born before that. That is such... <laughs> Jen, I'm disgusted with you. <laughs> to celebrate... You mean you celebrate 9-11? Well, yeah, for my dad's birth, yeah. Jen, I don't even want to get I into really that. Really put a diner in. What is that sound? That sort of <laughs> sound. Teletape. <laughs> is it my children? Yeah, they're very loud, aren't they? What? That, that's them beyond the yes. out there. No, don't worry. Let them live their life. They've, they're all right. They're all right. Them guys. All right. Listen to shout outs. Listen to shout outs. <laughs> You are a wonderfully stimulating thinker, says Steve Sharp. And, interviewer and podcaster, thanks for, for for so many of your exquisitely thoughtful and informed interviews. We've subscribed to your Luminary podcast. Vandana Shiva was great, and your questions were good too. <laughs> <laughs> Reese Davis says, hello, love the podcast. I've enjoyed Russell's shows and books for years now. Big mouth days. I see some lads in the pub the other day. Why were you kids. in a pub? Take my kids for something to eat. If it was anything that was open. So we got them some. We had some chips, scrambled eggs. <laughs> I didn't have the scrambled eggs. I'm a vegan, as you know. Anyway, the blokes in the pub, they called me over. Of course they did. It's coming home. All of that. Um, they goes, used to, uh, used to love you on on Big Brother's Little Brother. That's what they said. But did you correct them? No, I never correct anyone. I don't correct people if they misspell my name. I don't correct them if they think I'm Russell Grow, Russell Russell Crow, <laughs> Russell Grant, Russell Harty. Anything. I just let everything just roll over me, Jen, like the beautiful rivers and seas of Lowestoft cascading into your consciousness. Yeah. And the light of whatever that... No, it wasn't. I checked. 
(laughs) (laughs) I disagree with about 70% of what Russell says, says Reese. Mostly the spiritual stuff. But I like to be challenged on my beliefs and get out of my echo chambers. Under the Skin is the only podcast I listen to on Luminary. I only sign up for old Russ. I look forward to Saturday mornings. I also love the added banter with Jenny and wish her well on her long journey to mental health. Long, long, long journey. And then he's just put long with like loads of O's. L O O O. Then he uses zeros. Then he uses one of those Norwegian O's that's got dots in it. Then an O with a line through it. Long, like this. Long, long. It just looks like now he's just pressed down the O key. Long journey to mental health. Thank you for that, Reese accurate now time for bradley garrett i love bradley garrett we've sent him a book to his missus as pledged in this podcast because his missus i believe she was called angela i can't remember but no amanda she likes the podcast and she saw me once being torn dynastically to shreds by an audience in australia you know sometimes i would walk out into the crowd do you think that they tear me to shreds yeah, a little bit yeah I yeah they like do it. yeah there's there was no um space. boundaries Boundaries, yeah. I didn't like it. Do you think it was too much? Yeah. People pulling it, yeah. And then just think, just yield to it. Like this woman I met in the woods once, she says she lets the ants crawl all over her until she feels immersed in nature. I don't like it, and an ant crawls on me. I don't like it either, actually, Jen. It's a bit much, isn't it? She had a gnat on her at that point, and I was like, mate. Well, if a tick goes on her and she gets Lyme disease. She could get Lyme disease. That's one of the risks. She must surely have taken that into account. She's living in the woods, Jen, this woman. She's called Anatar. She must know the risks. Mustn't she? Must she? Yeah. Right, this isn't a Bradley Garrett. He's really good this. He's sort of talking about apocalypse, talking about end days. He's a brilliant writer and he sort of, I like all that stuff he does, hacking cities, you know what I mean? Like that you can find adventures in cities. Like from when I, that's when I was doing when I was doing my thing as the crow flies, I just run in a straight line. What? I know. I had to go find you once or twice. Where was I? You were in Stoke Newington at one point. Oh yeah, you had to get, <laughs> how did you get? I was about. I cycled in and you cycled me back and you gave me a, Sadly, yeah, I did, didn't I? Yeah. I was surprised I was able to do that. I was impressed. Because I was on a bike that was too small for you as well. Was it your bike? Yeah. So I rode it, you sat on the seat holding my shoulders yeah. and I just powered on. Yeah. It's a gamble, isn't it? I pulled my kids around in a little char- a little chariot the other day. That's good. It was pretty good. Like a little chariot made out, you know. You mean the, the little kid boxes? Yeah, but they're <laughs> little kid box. But they're at child level on the floor, you know, not the ones where... I don't like it when they're up on the saddle height. You, you know, could get a little mini saddle to go in the crossbar. I'd prefer that, yeah, because then I can see them. But I don't like it when they're behind in you the like seat. that. Yeah, they're behind you. It feels like, whoa! Oh, yeah. It's too, you know, it feels like it's they could topple. They could dislodge and you wouldn't know. Terrifying thought. I'd rather have them sort of taped to my body in some way, like an explosive, which is what they basically are. All right, so let's listen to Bradley Garrett. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Bradley, thank you so much for joining me on Under the Skin. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Russell. We've established a few things. Firstly, you've got fantastic facial hair and a wonderful smile. But we've also established that you are living by the uh, decree that you espouse around sort of off-grid living and looking for alternate systems because you're, you're, you don't live in a city, you live somewhere somewhat remote. That's right, isn't it? 
Yeah, we've got we've got a complementary pastoral backgrounds here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, you know, if you if you do research with people, you spend a lot of time with them. It's inevitable that you're influenced by their ideas in some level. Um, I haven't I haven't built a bunker, um, but I I did uh, at the beginning of the pandemic purchase a, a remote property, relatively remote property, in the mountains of Southern California. It's got a quarter acre. A lot of room for storage um, and I think most importantly here a sense of community you know I, I know all of my neighbors um, I can I can depend on them in times of crises and we've already been through a few we had wild wildfires last year that were creeping up the mountain and we all thought we were gonna have to evacuate that was I'd only been here for three months or so I thought I was gonna have to leave what do you think underwrites the um anxiety that you write about in bunker building for the end times what do you think what's causing the fear i think it's a lot of things um hmm. but it can it can be traced back uh probably to the cold war and you know the original existential threat of nuclear war you know the the possibility of the complete extinction of our species was something that, uh, you know, I think human beings hadn't really comprehended in the modern age until that time. And it's something that stuck with us. And of course, now we've got an increasing uh, frequency and severity of natural disasters as a result, a result of the climate crisis. And all of it, in my mind, is, is connected to a, a sense of fragility that we all have about society, about the world that we've built, about technology, uh, about capitalism, right? It, we all know that this is a fragile artifice that could crumble at any moment. Um, and I think that that's, I think that, that, that the anxiety is very um, deep seated in that sense. Do you think it is a fragile artifice? I do. Yeah. I, I, I think that we've been, Operating under an illusion, uh, particularly since the the introduction of neoliberal ideologies, you know, from the 1980s on, and, you know, we've been operating under this illusion that we can continue to um, uh, endlessly expand and consume and densify, and uh, you know, it only takes a small crisis for us to realize that, uh, you know, that's a that's a fiction that we've built. And we all we all live in fictions, of course. Um, most often, the fictions we crave for ourselves. But this is a this is a social fiction. It's a societal fiction. It's a civilizational fiction. Um, and I think all of us, on a deep level, know that that um, there's something about this that isn't quite real. And in fact, the the pandemic that we've all just gone through for me was more real than most of the things I've experienced in my life because we had to confront the possibility of mortality in a way that we're not used to doing. We had to con confront the possibility that, um, you know, the infrastructures that we depend upon could just collapse. It's interesting what you're saying. Everything you're saying is I've already got so many questions. One is that you could assume that the function of a culture might be to help us deal with truth to present us with truths and help us to process them culturally and perhaps presumably as a result of that term, communally. But it seems that actually the way our culture functions is to distract you 
from truth to prevent you from realizing truth, for example, around mortality, the hopelessness of aspirations that, that you're attempting to resolve through, you know, self-beautification and acquisition and stuff like that. Culture can't ever allow you to arrive there, at that kind of despair that often arrives when people have a personal crisis you know people on their deathbed aren't saying i wish i'd spent more time acquiring goods people aren't having near-death experiences where they realize that they should have spent more money on sort of face cream or whatever you know like what we're mostly realizing is that truth is something that's being somewhat concealed from us that cold war thing too mate that you said about i remember like i grew up I've I reckon I'm probably a couple of years older than you. That's my guess. And like, I, I grew up at a time where like the, the, that was still a reality. You know, learning about like the nuclear, like like the potential of new nuclear Armageddon. And someone once said to me, in a sense, what does it matter if there's an uh, 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 an apocalypse? Because there is for each of us anyway. Whether like, why does it seem to have more impact on you as an individual, knowing that what you're f confronted is sort of a global annihilation rather than. <clears throat> local or personal annihilation what's the sort of difference there and the other thing that sort of struck me is when you said about like you know about reality that sometimes when i was younger and i would think about violence that somehow like a violent confrontation strips away all of the various edifices that we voluntarily or otherwise live behind and like if someone says i'm going to kill you or punches you in the face like now you are like oh fuck yeah stuff like that can just happen like it doesn't matter that i've yeah. learned these things you know where is it now yeah you're exactly right and and the the doomsday preppers or survivalists that i've been spending years living with have you know they they explained to me that in some sense they were looking forward to a disaster <clears throat> because it ruptures the illusion um the bunker you know, whether you think about that as a physical space or a kind of metaphor, um, is, is, a, is a space for recreation. It's a space of rebirth, essentially, right? I mean, if you, if you don't emerge from the bunker, it's a tomb. Uh, so, so the, so the bunker, um, uh, is a space of rebirth, but it's also a space of control. And because so many aspects of our lives now are not within our control, I think that that's something that people seek. You know, they, they, they want to create a space where they know they can control the parameters of their existence. And that moment of being in the bunker, uh, you know, surrounded by the things that you've put together, uh, self-sufficient, cut off from the world, is precisely akin to that moment of violence that, that you're describing, right? It's, it's a moment of radical confrontation, with our existence, you know, that where, where the veneer has been stripped away and, and we're back to the basics. And I think, you know, a lot of us crave that on some level also because, you know, society and civilization originally was built upon a premise of, of mutual understanding, of cooperation, of human connection, connection with the natural world, right? And that now has been occluded by these, these social, economic, and political structures that um, are, are fundamentally unsatisfying on some level. And so what many of the preppers told me was that the disaster is a moment for rebirth, for recreation, for reconnection. Um, and so, I mean, strangely, there is an anxiety there underlying things, but there's also a hopefulness that when the disaster comes, it's it's a moment for us to confront ourselves and potentially to rebuild the world and 
this is a perfect moment to be talking to you because, you know, we're in that moment now. I mean, we, we have an opportunity to reshape things after going through a global disaster that's killed, what, almost 4 million people now. Um, we have a moment to uh, build a different kind of world. Whether we're going to rise up to that challenge, I, you know, I, I'm not sure. Um, but it's certainly a time of, of change. And that's exactly what these preppers had been telling me uh, long before the pandemic had hit. Cool. A few things there, Bradley. One, like the cave, the bunker, you know, I think of Christ, you know, and like yeah. the moment in the cave, that's so cool. That Like that's a moment before rebirth. And I also think of the Kali energy in Hinduism, like the, the destroyer, that things have to be destroyed that we may be reborn. reborn. And of course, most myths have that idea in, in agriculture itself requires a kind of death and burial for new crops to grow and stuff. Um, mate, this idea that is are survivalists a homogenous sort of group, or is there a lot of variety? Because when you just said that thing about the four million death, my assumption this is my assumption about survivalists, and obviously I don't know anything like as much as you do. I only know what I've seen on documentaries and stuff. Like um, my assumption would be that survivalists are sort of libertarian, right wing, anti-state, anti-government. Part of the root being kind of like a you know the king of England could come over here at any moment. <laughs> we best tool up and get get ready, and that they would therefore be kind of anti-vaccine. Would think that the pandemic was has been exaggerated, mobilized, misused, and that that you know that its risks have been you know um, I don't know exaggerated or whatever um uh, where am i wrong with my assumptions there on the survivalists well so there's a few things um one is you're not wrong there those people do exist <laughs> um and there's not you know it's a bit of a misnomer to describe this as a community of people <laughs> you know this is i mean there are people from um a full political spectrum that are ending up in these communities or adopting these practices. Uh, there's some great research uh, that came out of Queens College. Anna Maria Bounds worked with uh, inner city preppers in New York City, many of whom are black, and who said, you know, we grew up in essentially a constant state of emergency, um, dealing with crisis on a daily basis. And so they're they're prepping so that they don't have to go through something like that again. Um, many of the communities that I went to, and now here I'm using community in the sense that, you know, a, a, a group of people who have moved into a set of bunkers in a place, we can talk about the, the bunkers themselves, um, but many of those people came from drastically different backgrounds, um, uh, both vocationally and in terms of their demographics, politically across the spectrum. And what was fascinating to me is that uh, they were able to communicate around these shared methodologies, right? So, so you start you start with the thought experiment. If this happens, then what would I do, right? And then and then you start putting the preparations, the material preparations, in place, the emotional, psychological preparations in place to be able to deal with those scenarios. So uh, the, the preppers that I worked with were able to sort of bypass their differences because they were, they were trying to work through these problems, these thought experiments on a, on a uh, you know, uh, cooperative basis. And often that meant building complementary skills uh, 
so that they could see each other through a disaster. They, they call these mutual assistance groups. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, again, there's a lot, there's a lot there to unpack, but <clears throat> the, uh, the community is sort of wider and more diverse than you might expect. And I'll tell you now that, um, Recent research has indicated that just in the United States alone, 13, almost 13 million people are prepared to go for 30 days without uh, any sort of infrastructure, food, water, power, grocery stores. That's an incredible statistic. I mean, it's almost 1% of the population is prepared uh, to weather 30 days on their own. So that gives you a sense of how many people are involved and how many different sorts of people are involved in the practice. That's so cool, Bradley. One thing is like from the first part of what you're saying it's like that abstract ideals about you know your cultural values around what we once would have regarded as the left and the right are irrelevant if you're involved in the project of building a community that survives that the culture that consists of those kind of debates uh, you know my my view is kind of a distraction from important stuff um and Two, like one percent of the population, that's enough to overthrow the government. You know, like uh, like if it was the right one percent. You know, if you if you can if you can mobilize, protest, uh, civil disobedience, a sort of you know, I guess you'd need some strategy and some cohesion. But like that's a significant number. You know, that's an impactful number. Yeah, well, they uh, there were many preppers involved in the attempted overthrow of the government on January sixth at the Capitol. <laughs> I mean, there, I mean, it's kind of there is there is some crossover with um, uh, uh, militia groups in the United States, you know, doing weapons training, going off grid, um, and a lot of the flags and symbols um, that. I saw on the news on January 6th were very familiar to me after working with right these So, Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that, and that's why I say you're right. You know, these these um, factions do exist within the prepper community. But I would find, I, I, would, I would suggest that you would find a lot more people um, in the community who would suggest that, as you say, that's a distraction from the issue, right? That we need to be thinking about the, the practicalities of survival. I mean, that, that goes back to um, our, our roots as, as beings, as a species, yeah. right? I mean, we're, we, we're built to survive. Um, and so I, I, there is a certain satisfaction that comes with, you know, attempting to take control of those parameters. Now, of course, there are many things that you can't control, nuclear war, the climate crisis, you know, runaway artificial intelligence. We can go through the list of, of existential threats and, and neither you nor I on an individual level are going to be able to have much impact on whether or not those sorts of things unfold. Um, see pandemic for details. <laughs> however, however, um, uh, we can control, um, the parameters of our of our existence in terms of being able to respond to the unexpected and that and so that's the that's the thought experiment you know and that's the thought experiment that we all would have dealt with like as winter was coming in right and then as a community i mean i'm talking i'm going back hundreds of thousands of years right we would have we would have had to work as a community probably with people we totally disagreed with <laughs> to figure out what the hell do we do when winter hits and we don't have enough food, you know, do we, do we 
you know, go, do we conduct a raid? Do we go steal that food? Do we stockpile? If we do, how do we defend it? You know, these are, these are fundamental human questions that unfortunately, unfortunately, many of us don't have to confront anymore. And so that's the fragility, right? The fragility is, is the assumption that everything that we need to survive is going to be provided to us at the, with the click of a button, you know, it's going to, your, your, your food's going to arrive. You're going to be able to go to the grocery store and get what you need for tomorrow. Um, yes, we made it through this global crisis without that infrastructure collapsing, but it was close. You know, imagine if the, imagine if the fatality rate on this virus was like 10% or 20, right? Who's showing up to work? at that point. No, I mean, no, you know, the grocery store worker, the grocery store clerk is not going to work with a 10% chance of dying every day. Um, so then, then you're in a serious situation, particularly for the billions of people who live in cities and don't have access to um, uh, space or an ability to grow food. You know, people who are dependent upon uh, this sort of, you know, on-time delivery of all of their essential needs to survive are, are going to be in trouble in that sort of situation. Bradley, vast as this pandemic doubtlessly was, my personal experience of it was pretty cosseted because of, you know, for economic and medical reasons, I wasn't impacted in either of those ways, just due to the circumstances and some would argue privileges of my current conditions. Um, but like um, there was a while ago in this country, there was a sort of a fuel strike. No, it was, no, it was a lorry driver, transport worker strike. And like them, the guys in the main stopped driving. And as a result of that, like fuel stations didn't have fuel and like supermarkets didn't get delivered. This thing went on just for a week. It had a much sort of more tangible, again, it's probably 20 years ago. So the culture wasn't so uh, technological and, you know, delocalized, I suppose. But like that, I, I really felt that. I felt like, and people were like, you know, like if like within a week, cash points won't have money coming out of them. Within two, like within 10 days, supermarkets will be, and it's like, you see like, you know, to your point earlier about it being a thin veneer, whether that thin veneer is a personal one of like, you know, violence and other powerful atavistic forces that are dormant within us, or the veneer of society itself, which operates, one could argue, in the case of, you know, let's use the word civilization, literally as a, a, a veneer mapped onto these, the, these impulses. Furthermore, when you sort of say about, like, the ability of people to overlook, you know, cultural differences, you could be sort of like a, you know, maybe racist or you could be, well, you know, wherever you fell on the spectrum, if your focus is, hey, look, us 50 people have got to survive this period of time, you wouldn't really think about that stuff. And it makes me realise, actually, that how, like, and this is ancillary to our primary discussion, that how I feel that many of these differences and distinctions are promoted by, inverted commas, both sides of the argument, not necessarily by the people that are representatives of those arguments, but by a sort of a second, a higher position where it's beneficial for people to be thinking about that. Otherwise, you know, like for, to have any kind of sovereignty, you have to prevent people from thinking, hold on a minute, we'd be better off without you. Like, you know, I recognize that you tax us and we therefore and we get the benefits of your protection from taxation as a result of that taxation. But perhaps if we decentralized and ran our own communities, the thing I continually return to Bradley is 
ought we, when trying to construct social models, be mindful, respectful, aware at least, of our anthropological origins, even though I know that's a contested term, but like, you know, sort of broadly in the most sort of rudimentary primate Yuval Noah Harari type manner, like, okay, well, we can handle 150 people. We should be broadly democratic. There are different skill sets and values. Hey, it doesn't matter if you don't agree with those people's way of life. Just leave them alone. <laughs> like it doesn't. It's not relevant. You know, like it's only. It's like so many of the problems we have are as a result of the centralization, and the centralization is only beneficial to you know. What do you think about that whole line I'm pursuing? <clears throat> yeah. No, I think it's interesting. So, uh, centralization, globalization. Trying to trying to hold too much in our heads is part of what's causing the problem, right? Mm. And and it's in the interest of forces of of capital to keep us in that space, right? That space of confusion, frustration, uh, um, being overworked, unable mm. to think about alternatives. I mean, that's what that's what the forty work week, forty hour work week is about, right? It's sort of enough time that it doesn't burn you out but also enough time that you don't have time to really think about doing something else with your life yeah. you know because <laughs> um, you spend one day recovering from the work week and then one day you know maybe getting to that point where you're starting to to float away and then it drags you back in again yeah. um yeah i you know this uh, again the pandemic one of the things that has been so um uh threatening to uh, uh, governments and people in positions of power is that it's it's given people time and space in many instances and and as you say often that comes from uh you know a, a place of privilege people who were able to remote work or or had the you know financial and social circumstances available to them to be able to make use of the time <clears throat> but many of those people did use it as an opportunity to rethink their lives. People have left cities in droves. Mm. Um, you, they wanted to already, right? But they finally had the opportunity to be able to, to get outside of that, of that, of those structures that were constraining them and to be able to think about another way of life. I would also argue that, um, you know, as, as horrible as it was to watch the, the, you know, the capital being assaulted by, uh, racists and homophobes with Molotov cocktails, um, it, it also was, it stemmed from the same place, right? It, it was people finally having the space to think about, well, is this the structure we want? Is this the time for revolution? Could we build something else, right? And, the, I, you know, those, these mini revolutions have been taking place all over the world uh, in the past 18 months. And I find that really fascinating because, you know, the... the um, um, structures that had been constraining everyone they fell away a little bit and what we saw was was you know people trying to put into place uh, a different kind of structure that wouldn't necessarily like overthrow the previous one but maybe you know put some chinks in the armor to give them some space to breathe what mini revolutions bradley oh i just 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 people thinking about how to live their lives differently people relocalizing for instance and so you know we're talking about these these global forces of capital you know infrastructures that we depend upon you know international shipping um you know transport travel all of that um all over the world we've seen people moving back home staying closer to family 
building new communities, new tribes. Um, and uh, in, in a way, it's, it's a return, as you say, it's a return to, to a, more, a more human way of living or a more humane way of living. Um, and I, I hope that we can hold on to some of that. But, you know, so it drives me nuts when everyone talks about, oh, we've got to get back to normal. Mm. Well, what is normal? My God, you know, we've been living in a fantasy land for so long. <laughs> yeah, how much of your life is just bullshit? You know, whether it's like, you know, like know. even the devices that we're using now, we don't envisage the sort of the political, geopolitical cost of, of, of our devices, our convenience, the clothes we wear, everything, all of the, all of them are like, you know, just visible breaches in the system of total corruption. And every time I unpack some fruit from plastic, every time, like I feel like I feel a little sort of wounding at my own unconsciousness. Like, why am I not doing this yet? Why am I not living in harmony with what I actually believe? Why am I not like, right, okay, let's start a community, let's do it now, let's grow our own food, let's find a way of providing energy to run what we need, let's sacrifice what we don't need. That's like, you know, the, the way that these thoughts first started to occur to me, mate, in my own simplistic little binary brain, was like, would I be happier if I just let a bunch of refugees live in my house for all the convenience that it would cause me having to deal with strangers and the obvious complications that would come with that? Would my sum total of happiness increase because I would know at least now you're doing something you know and, and, and like those ideas have been extrapolated upon and let me tell you not as a result of action because there are still zero refugees living in my house but like because like with me thinking would i be happy if i just let go of you know like what are all my the, the tendrils of vanity and all of the things that i'm connected to you know i think so much of the performative culture that we operate within is because people know i don't know if they know but people aren't able to do have meaningful control over their real life so they're involved in a kind of a discourse that's happening in the abstract rather than well look jesus man let's get on with something real let's organize our communities do something meaningful rather than putting stickers on you know what you normal as we call it but like this company's got that badge up now this company's got that badge up this is all cool progress is happening really we're marching blindly to the same armageddon that the people you've been researching are kind of willing on because they think it'll be close closer to reality than what we're currently enduring. Well, yeah, and there's a, there's a there's a, a disjunction here because if you're engaged in these experiments, these thought experiments about, you know, what could happen that isn't in line with um uh, the traditional narratives of how life is supposed to operate, um, then you inevitably start to get sucked into conspiracy theories and all sorts of other things. I, th I think that's how, how preppers get involved in um, some of these more outlandish thought experiments about what could happen. The uh, vaccines mm. are a great example of this, right? Where you've got people saying, oh, they're, they're going to use it to uh, put a chip in your arm. They're going to use it to mutate your DNA. Um, you know, there's there's no there's no basis for those things. But of course, if you're engaged in these thought experiments about, you know, what would happen if a, an electromagnetic pulse wiped out all electrical systems across the earth? And how would I respond to that? Then you can see how you how you start to make these other sorts of jumps. Now, the disjunction that's kind of interesting here is that because they're engaged in those thought experiments, then they're localizing practices to be able to deal with those things. They're building communities. One of the communities that I went to in uh, in South Dakota 
with a, just a, an incredible place on its own. It's a it's a bunker field uh, that was built during World War II to store munitions. Um, so there's 575 of these these concrete. They call them igloos. They sort of look like an igloo. Um, the, but these concrete bunkers were empty shells. They had emptied all the all the munitions out of them. And uh, a, a real estate developer in California um, leased the land and then started leasing out these bunkers to build a, a doomsday community. He called it the X point. He said it's the point from which humanity is going to reemerge after the next great cataclysm. And I spent a couple of weeks living in that community and um, it was fascinating to watch them putting into practice so many of the things that you and I struggle to do. They were building solar panels. They were disconnecting from the grid. They were learning to grow food. They were repairing things, not because they had to, but because they wanted to learn how to repair things, right? All of it was about skilling up in a way um, that would allow them to deal with a crisis. And they were also building a tribe out there. They were building a community of people with complementary skills that they knew they could depend on uh, in, a, in a breakdown. And... I, you know, I've, I've spent the, the majority of my adult life in academia working with people who are often, uh, you know, uh, quite left in their political views. Um, people who talk constantly about, you know, uh, um, building communes, getting off grid, right? But then I was watching these people who very often had... Uh, you know, I didn't agree with politically or, or who did buy into these conspiracy theories. And they were doing the thing that we, we couldn't, right? Because we, we still get hung up, I think, on ideals, mm. right? They had sort of dispensed with the ideals. It was just, it's just <laughs> happening now. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. I've dispensed with the ideals. It's just happening now. You know that bit where we just talked about stuff we were never going to do? Yeah. Let's stop that because it's not helping. <laughs> let's, let's actually put the solar panels up. Yeah, but hold on. Can we make sure that there's people, there's good representation? And I'm not going to put the solar panels up with that guy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, man, that's so important. And um, what about the... Um, there's a few things. One is, yeah, I love your use of the phrase de-skilled because I know sort of how that plays into sort of uh, uh, anarchist sort of philosophy that we have been de-skilled, that our role is to consume, that none of us know how to do anything, we don't know how to fix a car, we don't know how to live our own lives anymore. I feel negligent sometimes, Bradley. I feel like, you know, like I feel like I'm failing my family that if the, if the great reality came, you know, the reality that all of this stuff is dreamed on top of nature and like if nature stirs or if cataclysm comes, then it shakes us all off. Right, now what are you going to do? Are you still a vegan now? <laughs> you know, like, right. now, now yeah. what are we doing, baby? That's the things that I feel like I, I, I need to get to bloody grips with. And I, and I, I I also think that's culturally very, very important. Like a few things, man. Like one, I spoke to, do you know who Ben Shapiro is? Like, uh, yeah. yeah. So I saw, you know, I went on his show, he came on my show and I very determinedly sort of had a conversation with Ben where I, you know, when he was on my show, like he sort of talked about stuff, like and I could have every sort of 10 words been going, oh, uh, you know, like I was just sort of like, and, but when I went on his, I kind of very carefully went, look, these are my values. I care about people being able to live how they want to live. So I guess you could say that's kind of libertarian. I don't think the state should be intervening in people's lives. And so I guess you could say, you know, like I think you've got the right to believe whatever you want. Like, so I sort of like slalom 
skimmed my way through, not disingenuously, but without without fetishizing conflict as a, as a way of asserting the differences between, you know, he, he and I. And and like and a, another thing, you know, when you say the thing about the the, the vaccines, i.e., the microchip side of it and that kind of stuff. Is it's like one hand you have the general idea of like we are not prepared for if there was an electromagnetic pulse that disabled our ability to you know have, have a the, the very grid that we're discussing getting off, but then you have there is no question control around the way that conversation is taking place. There is censorship of certain ideas, some of which might be because those ideas are irresponsible, and there is a sort of a shared social goal to i.e. have a vaccination program. But there are also people sort of like participating in this conversation. And this is a sort of a side issue. It's not what we're here to discuss, but I'm just talking about how it relates to the idea that you might want to break out of the mainstream or break away from the mainstream. There are like sort of, I think, somewhat reliable sources talking about anomalies and challenges that are not being, that are not able to be openly discussed, even right here, right now. And also we have the, the, foundation of that kind of cynicism is the relationship between government and big pharma like you know so it's like there is not all just ufos might be and jeffrey epstein could have been and it's not all like the sort of pizzagate level stuff some of it's like well this seems there seems to be a relationship between the state and big business there seem to be loads of lawsuits against every single one of the people that are you know excuse me organizations or companies corporations that are making those vaccines you know, so you can see there's an there's legitimacy for cynicism and like there's legitimacy for cynicism and there is actual censorship. So like those two conditions are like okay, you know that's not how I would want things if I wanted people to feel certain and comfortable about like a major project such as this one. Not that I'm suggesting for a moment that I'm siding with the people that are right on the margins of, you know, there's microchips in it. Yeah, it's. Uh... You know, the problem is is thinking about these issues on the scale of globe and uh, the globe and society and getting people to act on a local level, um, because uh, that's usually where people can act, where they can make a difference. Um, but, yeah, there's it's this is the problem, right, is it is that you you sort of need guides to be able to boil those issues down and to make sense of them so that you're able to act. And, you know, if people are, are operating on the basis of misinformation, confused understandings, then the actions that they take on a local level often, you know, are, are, are out of sync with what needs to be taking place. So, I mean, that's how we end up in these perpetual narratives, narratives of discord. You know, we can't get anywhere because everyone disagrees about what actions we should be taking on the day to day. Um, but... You know, the preppers would argue, and I think I would also argue that you just you just have to get on with the work um, and, you know, drag people along with you if you can. But, you know, we, the 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 bottom line is that crisis is inevitable. Uh, disaster is always haunting us. It's something that we're going to have to deal with. Right. And and um, in the same way that you know, in a, in a very sort of stoic register, thinking about your own mortality, thinking about your own death, at, can act as an impetus to get you to achieve more, to feel more, to be more present. I think if you if we th if we think about the infrastructures of our lives collapsing, not constantly, don't drive yourself nuts, 
But, you know, if you just remind yourself every once in a while that, you know, we're cherished, we're blessed to have these things that we have, but it could fall apart and there might be another another scenario that we have to deal with, um, you know, it it might motivate us to be more present, more caring, to build communities that matter to us. Uh, you know, so there's a, there's a, there's a hopefulness in all of the narratives around the prepping communities that I worked with, right? If you don't believe that there's going to be a future, there's no point in prepping for it. It, you know, if, if you succumb to, uh, wild conspiracy theories and despair and you, and you genuinely believe that we're going to be, you know, obliterated in a nuclear Armageddon or colonized by aliens, I mean, there's no point building for that or even thinking about it necessarily, right? Because it's, like, you know, we could walk around all day thinking about being hit by a car. That would be pointless because once, you know, <laughs> once it once it happens and you're dead, it doesn't matter anymore. Um, you know, the, the most complicated thing, I think, to imagine is the world without us. Like, oh, like wor the world without human consciousness. And I know that's anthropocentric, um, but it's... You know, it's like you have to imagine that there's somebody left behind. There's something left behind. There's, there's, um, you know, otherwise, what is the point of anything that we're doing? So, you know, putting mechanisms for survival in place um, can also be a motivation to act, to build, to create, you know. I mean, wh why write the book if we're all going <laughs> to die? You know what I mean? <laughs> My new book, Nothing Matters and There's No Point in It, is out in shops now. <laughs> Um, so, right, but, well, ni nihilism is one possible conclusion to this whole story. <laughs> yeah, man, and uh, like that's one thing I'd not considered that the lack of nihilism in um, prepper communities that like there there is an, an inherent optimism. And the other thing that you know when you're there, like what is it like when you say, for example, in that one that the igloo bunker land, like do you kind of get on with everyone and do you feel all right and do you feel like oh yeah this could be okay i mean you, you said at the beginning it's influenced you and you now live a more remote life uh so i i you know i i was uncomfortable at times with some of the conversations being had um but i also like quite enjoyed driving around drinking beer and shooting guns while cool. i was there you yeah, know, yeah that was yeah that was fine that's that what was, uh, you, but... you were drinking beer and shooting guns oh yeah yeah, alcohol and guns are a great mixture. Um, I'm quite good with an AR-15. It turns out. Is that um, a type? Of, is that a hunting rifle? Or? It's that's an that's an well, assault it's not rifle. an assault rifle, but it's yeah. These are the, these are the the weapons that are often used in mass shootings in the United States, and uh -huh. there are quite a lot of them in the community. Um, and a kind of flagrant disregard for safety, you know, based on their libertarian ethos. That that again, I quite enjoyed. Um, mm. You know. Take your four, take your four wheel drive and your gun. Go to the top of the hill. You know, shoot, shoot a bunker. Do whatever you you want to do. Um, but so, but the other thing is that is that uh, most of our days there were dominated by projects. Yeah, we we were you know do, doing flooring, installing electrical systems, trying to fix vehicles, trying to put the solar panels up, and I absolutely love that because I feel like I. You know, it, it sort of took me back to um, my childhood when when you learn through phenomenological experience, sensory experience, you know, you're engaged with the body, you're engaged with the hands, you're trying to figure things out. Um, and, and my life, I guess, you know, probably since I finished my PhD has been has been dominated by, um, uh, you know, mental games 
<laughs> philosophy, writing, working in the abstract. Mm. Um, and so that was the, that was the thing that I most enjoyed in these communities was, was working on real projects and trying to figure out, well, I use real problematically there, <laughs> working on projects that had practical application. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are skills, those are skills that I did take away from these communities. Um, and you know, now on my own property, uh, I've been able to to fix some of the problems with my house on my own. You know, I don't I don't have to call a contractor. I know how to do that. Get now. lost. That's what did you feeling. do? What did you do? What things have you done? Uh, so I I hung a chandelier in the treehouse here. I'll point you up. You can see it. You put that cable in, and did you? And did you? And did you I, have I put to put? That... Did you have to mount something for the cable to come through? You've wired. I did. It. Yeah. I wired the I wired the electrical box. I've done some woodwork. Um, I bought a I bought a 1972 GMC truck. Uh, I've been able to tweak that a bit. Would you um, watch YouTube instructionals? How or, or this is all stuff you got from oh, the you, bunker gang? No, YouTube, YouTube is is the best for. I mean, instructional videos will teach you everything you need to know. But you have to have a sort of. But you, YouTube's going down you one a... after the apocalypse and after the electromagnetic flux. <laughs> well, <ex> <laughs> Shit, how do I build an igloo? Ah! <laughs> exactly. No, you've got to have a kind of baseline confidence to be able to even attempt to undertake these projects. I mean, it's just like anything else. Once you know it can be done, then you can sort of, you know, you can spitball it, <laughs> work through trial and error until you figure it out. Um, so spending time with these communities did teach me that, yeah, of course, you can you can build these things. Um, there was there was one bunker that I went to that was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it was in in Thailand outside of Chiang Mai, and this was a Canadian guy who had moved to Thailand, uh, married a beautiful woman there. They had a one year old child. They were like like the like a model couple or like an Abercrombie ad, and he he was working on oil rigs and kept moving them into these sort of increasingly secure gated communities. Mubans they're called. And he was getting kind of paranoid while he was away because he was because he was reading the news. He was saturating himself with with all of this, you know, anxiety about things that are happening on a scale he couldn't really control. And he eventually made the decision to build a bunker. Well, the place that he built it was like the like the most um, uh, unexpected place you would you would find a bunker. It was a tiny, tiny village. Uh, where many people were living in sort of shacks and sheds. Um, the people who did have houses often just left them completely open, like, because security there was the community itself. And he bought this plot of land and built this four-story concrete block with no windows and sort of, uh, it was it was booby-trapped, like he had a room in between the front door and the, and the, the, the main house that he could sort of, like, lock someone in. Um... Uh, he had bulletproof windows installed on the top, but he also had, was growing uh, passion fruit down the inside of the walls. There was a sort of swimming pool that was uh, that was under an open air atrium, uh, and underneath the swimming pool, a fallout shelter that doubled as a day spa. I mean, he had created he called it a um, an eco fortress, and he he had created this totally self sufficient um, space that was ecologically sustainable but also a bunker. I mean, it could, it could be defended. Like he had a hatch on the roof. We went up there he opened the hatch to the roof. We went up there to go see the solar panels and he closed the hatch and he showed me that he could lock it so that he could actually defend the roof with weapons if it was ever assaulted. And standing on the roof, I look out into the jungle and 
there's a there's a watt out there and this this giant uh, uh you know 20 20 meter gold buddha rising out of the jungle looking at this bunker they were staring at each other and i just thought you know these here's two competing <laughs> visions of of you know of the world right you've got the bunker in this community um unassailable and then the the buddha in the jungle enticing you to come and and sit and be at peace and accept the fate of the world um I, yeah, I it's I I saw some incredible places during the course of this book and it did make me you know as any good research does think really hard about my existence and what's important in life and, and that's part of the reason I've ended up back in California close to family during the pandemic and and you know working on projects that I that I actually care about. When I hear about that bunker that does a lot to me, you know. I feel like I feel I've got more faith in his vision than mine, you know, <laughs> like I feel like, well, he's took some necessary steps there. I mean, there might be some aesthetic choices where we would differ. And certainly my skill set's going to need a lot of rejigging and frankly bolstering before like I'm ready to undertake it. But it's interesting, I suppose, because it's like the vision you have to tackle in order to take action is like, you know, if you think of like the, you know, the hatch, it's like, presumably given the location, it's not, it's not military forces or the CIA or whatever that's coming. It's the other starving villagers that are on their way in to breach the, the eco fortress there. And it's them that you're kind of shooting and stuff. I watched, um, I watched, uh, you know, like talking about that, or billionaire bunkers you know those for the kind of elite version of this the high-end version of bunkers i watched a news thing once where like a guy who you'll obviously be familiar with i assume who sort of like is a contractor that's building and facilitating these luxury bunkers it's like sort of saying oh, and this is where you know we've got munitions here and this is where the guards will shoot and like it's weird because it's on a mainstream yeah. news you know so like the people that are getting shot are you the viewer as you try to desperately in one last throw of the dice establish a little bit of equality and a shot down in the in the attempt what what um tell me some stuff about the um the ethics behind and the reality of the more elite kind of billionaire version of the bunker mentality well yeah, I mean, at, the, it, at that bunker in Thailand, we eventually got to the point in the conversation where I said, you know, don't you don't you think that your neighbors are going to be alienated by this thing that you're constructing, this behemoth, this unassailable behemoth, you know, <laughs> l looming looming over their village? And he said, you know, he said, you know, you're right. Uh, when I was building this, I mean, halfway through building it, he realized that it, you know, it was it was quite selfish. Um, I mean, the, the, the actual aesthetics of the building were quite selfish. Um, it's nice on the inside. And, yeah. <laughs> but, but, he, but he said uh, uh, that he had realized that, you know, making a connection with his neighbors was going to be important. So he eventually did invite people in to come see what he was building and talk to them about it. And um, The unassailable behemoth tour. Please welcome. To, why are you well, intimidated welcome. by yeah, my unassailable <laughs> behemoth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and and a lot of these a lot of these spaces do have that that quality, a very off putting quality. I mean, that's 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 part of what they're built to do, like a gated community covered in CCTV cameras and barbed wire. You know, it's it's a. I I saw a um, I read um, 
uh, a book by some architects that referred to this as spiky architecture, right? Like it's it's meant it's meant to poke you and prod you and send you running in the other direction. And uh, one of the bunker builders that I worked with, who's I think is the guy you're talking about, um, he told me that you know yeah they didn't have any hopes of you know fending off the army or something like that. But in the in the event of a sort of uh, you know civil war or some kind of domestic strife or you know temp, you know no matter if it's for a day or a week or a month, um, his goal was to make the place a hard target. You know he says I I want I want if people are out looting I want them to go for the grocery store before they come to us, and that was kind of the goal. It was it was to act as a deterrent. But he did say you know I don't we, you know no one wants to shoot anyone. Um, we just want people to go for the soft targets first. So yes, I mean, the part of the ethical conundrum here is that what you're defending against is often your, your own neighbor, your local community. Um, but, but as you build these places and, you know, uh, people become interested in them, inevitably you start building connections that, I mean, they become talking points, right? So you, I mean, this is the, the, this community is full of contradictions and this is one of them is that if you build a conspicuous bunker, you end up meeting everybody <laughs> around the bunker because they want to talk to you about why you're building it and what you're worried about. And you then, you then start to build uh, a bit of a community and people, you know, understand that, well, that's his particular neurosis and, you know, we're just going to have to live with it because Bob's worried about all these things. And, and, and then maybe you get them thinking about it as well. It's interesting because it is literally monumental, to, which is obviously something you've, you know, addressing in your um, observation of the Buddha and the unassailable behemoth. That in a sense, they're both, you know, the, the golden Buddha is a, a monument to our potential to journey within the structures of the self and achieve a kind of equanimity and if enough of us did that then we would arrest the many crises that you know that we're discussing not all of them if some of them are you know beyond human control or not caused by human beings but certainly we would be able to build a different kind of society at least the the, the what occur, you know my assumptions are that the cataclysm when it comes will somehow be as a result of human malfeasance and I, maybe that's just my personal character the way I'm more inclined to worry about an assailant than I am cancer you know like I just it's easier for me to dramatize the idea of that kind of problem you know maybe that's just my maybe that's just my nature um about but obviously what is it a monument to it's a monument to a kind of a creeping awareness that things aren't going to work out and that we should be preparing and, and it's sort of it's in our folk tales and our mythology the ark is in our mythology the, the you know that ant grasshopper kind of prepare for the winter kind of story is almost like it's aesop or something isn't it it's in our mind the idea of preparation preparation this is not always going to be like this i mean and even if it's referring to a personal apocalypse as in you know atrophy old age and demise or a social cultural one such as we've been discussing there at length you know that something is coming and, and on a personal level bradley that man that stalks me that i i can't i hate that idea of well things are okay now but you know like that like i sort of i can't sit with that very long like, you know, it takes a lot of work for me to live with inevitability. Yeah. 
yeah no i i completely understand that i um and these bunkers are m monuments i mean I, I in the book i call them an arc the architecture of dread um, mm. because it's 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 a physical manifestation of this undercurrent um that is revealing something about our society the way that we're living the threats that we face um and of course by many of them by the very nature of their construction will become monuments they will be there in a, in a in a thousand years uh the, these reinforced concrete structures you know if humanity does survive to that point you know there will be some some archaeologists in the future that will be looking at at all of these sort of bunkered spaces you know well stockpiled and thinking what happened to these people you know what were they what did they do to themselves to drive themselves into this space and what's really um disturbing to me is to think that actually maybe it's it's not something out there that's happening that has caused this but something inside of us um However, I would also suggest one more complication here, and that's taking this notion of selfishness and, and um, spinning it in a slightly different direction. I had more than one person tell me um, that part of the reason they were building the bunker was because it was a space of disconnection, a space for meditation. You know, so this comes back to the idea of the bunker being a place of, of, of renewal and rebirth. Um, and they had built it because their their phone doesn't work there. They know they're not being tracked by satellites. They're not being watched from space. You know, it's kind of like the uh, um it's a, it's a sanctuary from the present rather than uh, a structure to confront the future. Um yeah, so so all of those those projects that they were undertaking in their bunker, they were they were um uh, you know, reflect reflective it created a reflective capacity within their lives that they weren't finding in everyday life. Hey. Um, and that was, again, was something I didn't expect to find in these communities, people who are quite thoughtful in, in, in their practices. To consider further the, um, the uh, values there. Like I was wondering, Bradley, you know, that part of it, as you say, like, you know, being able to be off grid or whatever, like that we increasingly perhaps people that fall under the general umbrella of cultures like I guess we can take for for granted that you and I are discussing might be beginning to feel that we are nodes in a grid and our individuality and our autonomy at a, you know at literally at a personal level but also at a sort of tribal level is being eroded to the point of irrelevance that we're, we'd we're always in operation we're always in operation and you know the, the 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 phone. I suppose is such a wonderful um, uh, vehicle for contemplating that. That you you wake up, you turn on the phone, you do the thing, you're in interaction. Like the, the, sometimes, I feel that there are so many hooks in me. You know, like I I, I have it as just like I guess because I've got young children and I like so I sort of get these sort of flashes of I don't want to be preparing them for the life that I see modelled through 
tropes in films like oh that you know like, like even ones that you don't think of as particularly insidious perhaps like uh oh will they go to university will they do this will they do that i think i don't want them doing this bullshit like you know i don't want them to sort of be sort of like putting their feet in a predetermined path like you know i feel like no i'm let's go someplace and let's sort of you know rebuild eden and there's sort of you know like i have that impulse in me i mean i don't know if it's megalomania sort of narcissism i don't know what it is but i know partly it comes from a, a a kind of cynicism towards the culture and a sort of a sense of dislocation in a kind of in an animal way that we're not we're not home we're not we're not living how we were evolved to live yeah I, it's 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 both uh, spatial and temporal dislocation. I think you know our our consciousness is constantly split between where we are in the present and where these devices and technologies are calling us out to be in another place. Um, there's also, I, I think, something insidious about the idea that we know we're being watched all the time, and that we are the watchers, right? So like we're we're watching ourselves go through this narrative that we constructed. Um, even though we know fundamentally there's something um, there's something unfulfilling about it, and that's where that cynicism comes from. So that's why I say, yeah, yes, you know, building these spaces is selfish, perhaps. But if that if the result of that selfishness is more self reflection, more awareness, more creativity, um, then you know maybe there's some some good to be had in that. This book sounds amazing. You went to four continents, spoke to over 100 people, and your background, you've PhD in geography, MA in archaeology, BS, I don't even know what that means other than the obvious, uh, BA in history. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you're so clever and educated and qualified. And what in these various bunkers, I don't know what the plural is, bunkai, that you visited, did you... Um, did you reflect on your previous get ready for something quite clever now, Bradley? The very the bunkers of academia that you previously inhabited. <laughs> Those lightless towers. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. I mean the the yeah, the you know, the bunkers of our institutions, uh the the biological bunkers that we all built around ourselves. I mean, it was kind of interesting to watch the uh you know, world leaders attempt to bypass the pandemic and everything just collapsing around them, right? I mean, it just to completely punch through, um, you know, that that artifice of protection because uh, the pathogen didn't care. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I've I've spent so much time um, living in my head. <laughs> Uh, you know, <laughs> that's why it was it was great to get back to doing something practical. That being said, um, my PhD, which I I spoke to you about, oh man, t I don't know, eight years ago maybe. Well, um, was on ur was yeah, it was on urban exploration. I was sneaking into off limit spaces in London. Oh wow! How did, we, where did we, we meet then? Yeah, we I it was it was on. The rate it was you were on the radio oh, yeah, or a yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, and we we had this conversation about trespass and 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 access to off limit spaces. Um, and then you had like a resident poet working with you. Yeah, gee. And yeah, and you and and you sent me this poem that I have had up in my office. Is it here? Uh, since my P 
since my PhD. It's actually in a shipping container in Dublin right now uh, because I'm supposed to move to Ireland, and you know that plan has been rejigged. You're extraordinary. Um, but but yeah, it's kind of you know I I I tend to focus on projects um, that have you know, practical components, because I like to live in the world, you know, I like to right. explore infrastructure, I, right. I like to think about the politics of space, you know, I like to see what people are building, I like to understand how space is being shaped by their practices, and how they're being shaped by the places that they're in, because that gives you a sense of space and time that is localized, it's embodied, uh, it, it feels to me like something tangible that I can hold on to. And, you know, that's why I write about these things rather than, than you know, living in the realm of, of abstract speculation all the time. Yeah, I know. Like, thinking about Jen, who produces the show, told me that, uh, you know, like Nick Hayes, who's been on the show, who's fantastic, and that the, the great Robert Nick's McFarlane awesome. yeah. like, uh, reviewed your book. And both of those guys have been on here, and I, I, I love them both. And I remember that conversation because what, what that was, mate, is that I, when I was living in London prior to becoming a father and all the things I've become to become a father, like I, I was sort of, I got into going sort of on runs. This is how it started organically for me. I was like, I want to like just run in straight lines. Why can't I go down there? You know, and like, so I started to just like climb over things and go in things. I'm not talking about the private and per as Nick Hayes would make, make clear. No, I'm not talking about trespassing in people's gardens and the personal property of individuals, but like looking at spaces that are sort of, um, deemed um, unbreachable and sort of just going, going in them and climbing stuff and getting... And it made reality change. It made me, you know, like that, um, is it Thomas Aquinas? I can't remember. Like, you know, the kingdom of heaven is spread upon the earth and man sees it not. You know, like it made me feel like this is not, the reality is more than this. I do it a lot still. My wife is different than me, She obviously. She's sort of like, I thank God, like sort of... Um, more orderly, calmer than me. And like, you know, whenever we're apart and particularly if I'm with the children, I see the necessity for the, the, that particular pair of influences in, in our little family. Um, because I like to sort of trespass and stuff. Again, I wouldn't intrude on someone's personal deal, but like there's sort of some nearby me, there's a place that's being developed and I like to go in there and there's an abandoned building and stuff like that. And I like getting in there and I've always sort of liked the idea of like, what happens, what happens, what happens? And in a sense, it's, I'd love your perspective on this. Like, you know, like our man, uh, dear Jordan Peterson writes a lot about you know chaos and order, of course, you know from a psychological perspective. But I suppose how this sort of somewhat plays out here is, I've been thinking lately that um, you know chaos can be frightening. It, it, there can be danger in chaos, but the only threat to order is chaos the idea of one order being immediately replaced by another order and it being seamless is sort of ridiculous so like chaos is a force that needs to be harnessed whether that's as a creative person in various applications on the individual and personal level and i think culturally and socially like that how do we manage chaos and i started to have this sense recently real recently and it's dangerous to think about to talk publicly about things that you're only just experiencing surely you must know that as a man who sort of writes and creates a lot you know i'm only feeling this stuff now that chaos can be something that we can learn to ride use to learn to mobilize and i suppose your whole bunker thing but also your stuff about property and trespass is about talking about yeah lines boundaries spaces that exist and i wonder what you think about that the possibility of kind of conjuring almost shamanically the potency of chaos in that we may reorder 
whether that's personally yeah, or culturally. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, uh, <laughs> I had a, I just did a, ran a field school with uh, some of my students here where we went to the San Andreas Fault. And I, you know, I'm a geographer. I tend to think about things in terms of, you know, space and geological forces. And <clears throat> we went to the fault line uh, and you, you could see geological time, which is a fantastic thing. It, you know, the, this sort of like ripple of the earth and uplift. But also we realized that, the fault line was where all of the water was coming out of from the earth, right? And we're in the middle of the desert. We're around Palm Springs. So you have all of these these palm forests, uh, you know, fecundity, animals everywhere, you know, deer out there drinking. I mean, it's this kind of incredible oasis that is created by what could be a force of great destruction, right? Like th this fault line is also the thing that could take all of Los Angeles down in a heartbeat. And yet here it is, the wellspring of life. Um, thinking about, particularly for me, the subterranean, right? like what's under our feet? What don't we see? You know, what happens to our understanding of the world? And, you know, Robert McFarlane has written a beautiful book about this, but, you know, what happens to our understanding of the world when we start, you know, exploring those spaces, digging into those spaces? I did that for, for 10 years in London. I snuck into every off-limit space underground I could find. Tube tunnels, electricity tunnels, sewer systems, bunkers uh the new crossrail tunnels um uh, you know we did everything what stayed with and you what... most hmm? what stayed with you most what image what uh what experience oh uh, uh um disused tube stations are absolutely incredible i mean you know because the platform is there the trains are running through but it's devoid of people and often they have these kind of you know artifacts left behind so you get this very visceral connection to history, you know, artifacts from from the Second World War that you you know are, are sitting there in the station, you know, posters. Um, being in those places, being in those places, and particularly being in them when no one knew I was there, uh, was an incredible feeling. So, and and again, a moment of total chaos. Like this is insane. We could be arrested. We could be hit by a train. All sorts of terrible things could happen. Um, but the the best work that I've ever created, I've, I, and I, I published two photo books um, from that, from those experiences, the best creative work I ever did was in those moments of, of, you know, elation, joy, euphoria, but also terror, right? So that's the, that's the wellspring, you know, that's the fault line ripping, you know, and the water gushing out of it. Um, you know, that's what I'm always trying to find again. And going into these bunker spaces, which again, are often very often, you know, not visible from the surface or, or, you know, they have a kind of um, uh, alternative superstructure that you have to kind of dig into to understand what's actually going on there. Um, it, it, it reshapes your notion of, of geography on a, on a sort of three dimensional scale, you know, like we, we often move through our lives and we're just on this kind of 2d plane. Um, but when you start digging into things, and again, you know, we can talk about this physically or metaphorically, we explode everything into three dimensions, and that changes your perception of of space and how it's ordered. Um, and that's part of the reason that I'm 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 always so enticed by by subterranean construction and relics. And it's not something I have to say that um, I find in natural subterranean environments in the same way there's something particularly enticing about human beings going out with heavy machinery or shovels or hands and getting into uh, the geological structure of the earth to create something um, that 
you know, as I said before, is going to be a monument to finitude, right? It's something that's going to, that is going to, that is going to exist for hundreds or thousands of years as a reminder that, you know, we were here. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. That makes me think about a lot of stuff that McFarlane in his book is talking about the, you know, like the alternate world, six inches beneath our feet, that up here, the sun is shining. People have got their arms out of the car, the radio's on and down there in, in the case that he's talking about in the example I'm citing, forgive me. Like it's like, a, you know, some natural subterranean space that he's inhabiting, but he visits all variety, of course, as you're obviously aware and like that, it's impossible to ignore and certainly he highlights deliberately the analogy with this kind of psyche and what you said there about that it makes such literal sense when I think about how I can be on a walk you know I walk the same walk a lot because there's a lot of time when it's like I've got to take my dog you know and sometimes I'm just absolutely immune to to the what's happening to me physically I'm just sort of walking I'm listening to something I'm not even really aware of what the dog's doing where he is or whatever you know and like I'm just cracking on but like I can sometimes I make myself stop and observe and kind of in this instance drop down you know drop down metaphorically into myself and observe and to feel and the fact that there is this sort of trespassable land you know for years I didn't trespass it for years I observed that chain link fence and just sort of thought leave it alone and once I sort of started in the first time I breached it I was like oh shit man I shouldn't be doing this and now I don't even think about the moment that I sort of cross over I just sort of go in there there's more things around for the dog to look at and do and there's there's a, it's a waterworks it was a administration building for a water company the buildings have been demolished there are no subterranean spaces that i can see other than these deep sort of i guess they were wells or cleansing or for taking samples or something like that and but it's going to be developed it's going to be developed soon you know and when i was a kid i grew up opposite these chalk pits um that were no longer used and there were there were bunkers that's what they were called the bunkers and i guess uh, this is information i learned when i was about six so it might not be true but they were for sort of military exercise there were these sort of concrete bunkers that were used for stuff and there was all litter and stuff in them and burned out cars here and there but nature had reclaimed it it was beautiful and eventually it got developed into what is now a massive massive sort of housing uh, estate and you know i remember feeling very sort of sad about that about the sort of claiming of that land the taking back of that land currently too i'm reading this sort of william blake book which i should get the title of jen we asked charlie what the title is and the author of that william blake book and like uh he talks about blake like he's blake's simultaneous vision of the mundial and the uh sublime like in the example this dude uses is like there's a bit where he's talking about um like a thistle which blake imagines berating him you know, but like in it, he sort of elsewhere, Blake talks about, he knows it is just a thistle, but it is also an old man berating him. Neither, like he acknowledges the botanical reality of that thistle, but there is another reality simultaneously taking place. Yeah, yeah, the, the uh, well, this, this gets back to our uh, anthropogenic or anthropocentric tendencies, right? Like the, the, the thistle is its own being, it has its own force, it has its own reality, um, which is an alien phenomenology to us. We'll never understand it. Um, but, you know, attempting to understand it, being, being present with some kind of awareness of that, that, that consciousness, if we want to put it in that way, or, you know, that presence, that's, um, uh, that's a, that's a that's a skill 
that we have to cultivate. And, you know, you were, you were saying earlier that your ability to weather this pandemic, you know, in a sense comes from a space of privilege. Um, people have said to me many times that, you know, my intentional acts of putting myself in danger, going into places I'm not supposed to be is, is also, um, comes from a space of privilege. Right. Um, and I, and I, and I think that's, you know, that's true. Um, I did, I did go through a pretty massive court case in, in England, actually had my passport confiscated, my U S passport confiscated by the, by the uh, British transport police for three years while I was awaiting trial. But because of the underground the stations. Is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, amongst other things, but you know, maybe stories, stories for another time. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the privilege that I'm taking is not meant to impinge upon anyone else. Right. Like the privileges that I'm taking are actually attempts for me to cultivate that awareness that you're talking about, right? To like, again, to rupture, to to to, to punctuate uh, the the everyday existence that has been constructed around us with moments of meaning, and you can do that forcefully by injecting yourself into emergencies or chaotic situations because you you it's inevitable that you become hyper present in those moments right now the space the space of privilege of course and the and the counter argument to this is like most people on earth are living in a state of emergency all the time right and like they can't choose to to emerge from that thing i mean think about being homeless think about living on the streets not knowing you know being cold all the time not knowing where you're going to find food you don't you know, yes, of course, you're present, you're hyper aware of your situation, but it's not in a way that's comfortable. And and what they probably would like to reach for is a, is a moment of getting out of that present to be able to think about their circumstances. And so, um, as with everything in life, the middle path is the one we speak, the one we seek, right? Like, you, we're always trying to find a balance between those, those forces of, um, uh, I don't know, friction and non-friction, you know, it's, we, we want to kind of ride that wave in the middle. And for those of us who live lives where our, you know, we're, we're temporal and spatially dislocated <laughs> constantly, we're, we're seeking those moments of, uh, of awareness and presentness to counteract the rest of it. None of us really want to live in a suspended state of involuntary suffering and comfort certainly seems like a salve for, for, for that problem. Um, but I feel like, you know, when this, there is a sort of a spirit of investigation that may well be valuable. That's not about, you know, when McFarlane talks about the difference between conquering the heights, uh, the, the vulgarity of like mountaineering versus the, I don't know, the presumed honor of like exploring these ulterior spaces. I've, I think that's fascinating and I think like um, the kind of work you're doing in you explore everything and subterranean London and London riding like the you know like for me this is like to to become an explorer of what is there without like it's not going to be about going down to the Amazon or whatever now you know it's going to be like well let's actually look at what's here and what we're dealing with um, I, I think it's I think it's important and I I also feel that it's a kind of uh, rejection of how thin that analysis is of course you know like uh you know poverty is real lots of people live in poverty uh, you might 
contest that it's not the people that are advancing those arguments at a cultural level right now it, that, that are you know experiencing those things certainly and i kind of sometimes query the value of of uh, pushing those ideas particularly as it's not like yeah we're not it's not like the imposition of like hierarchies because you're fucking around in a railway station you know, this, is, this is this is it's hardly clive of india <laughs> <laughs> well but the the i mean we can also think about the 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 force of the images we create you know i mean they're not just representations of the experiences that we've had like those photo books um are are artifacts of experience right and and what i always hoped and I think I think Nick Hayes has a similar take on this. Is I always hope that in creating those materials, it inspires people to rethink their relationship to the spaces around them, right? So you know, I don't, I don't just want people to look at the photos and say, "Oh, that's you know, that's a gorgeous image," you know. Okay, you know, you just reduced it to the to a to a basic commodity. Thank you for buying my commodity. You know, what I'm really interested in is is. Um, getting those images to act on people right so and and again this is kind of you know global distribution to inspire local action it's it's the same project right like go go and explore whatever's around you explore the chalk caves right go to the sewage treatment works go see these things that are around you because they'll they will be gone and will be gone you know all these moments are are ephemeral and that's what gives them meaning but if we stop exploring the world then you know, we just descend into the world of simulation, and what's the point? Yeah, even like it's a the kind the simulation of the quotidian, as opposed to you know, oh, it isn't real. Just that if all of your decisions are kind of predetermined, if you're not really making choices at all, if you're just if you're forever on the pavement in some description, the sidewalk, then yeah, what kind of what kind of freedom is that? Oh man, it's really good to speak to you again, Bradley, and to be reminded of our of our um, former encounter. I feel like there's several people that I've spoken to on this podcast over the course of years where I think this is this is it. These are the people that I need to consult and consort with in order to start establishing what, what I might call a template for the confederacy here like here is a basic template that might work if you want to run yours on the lines of white supremacy then that's that's fine we, we won't run ours on that basis if you want to run yours on the basis of absolute pansexuality you do whatever you know, just like some basic principles that transcend those kind of you know not, not to diminish the civic right civic rights struggles of the last hundred years thousands of years but for me i feel like what are we going to do now like the way you talk about academia in its application in its application what does it matter when you're trying to install a, a, a solar panel or trying to repair a car or joyfully firing an ar-15 what what does it matter these perceived cultural differences that have been embedded in us somehow or another well inhabiting the realm of praxis is i think the way forward you know taking taking those intellectual exercises which are also important and you know tying them to some sort of you know phenomenological experience mm. um i i think that's really where the magic is yeah that's really cool thank you Cheers, Bradley. Russell, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It's brilliant talking to you. Well, Jen, did you like that? Did you learn anything? Yeah. What? 
Loads of bad doomsday preppers. <laughs> You've been take microdosing. You seem like someone no, who might microdose. No, I'm really tired, but I wouldn't mind. Why doing are you that. tired? I got up too early. Why? Because I got up at half three. Why? Because I thought I could skip the traffic. Why? And then two roads were closed. Because it takes three and a half hours. No, it doesn't take that long. Why did you move so far away? Why don't you come live near here? No, because I did live with you for two weeks, and then I may or may not have got kicked out. Here? Yeah, I remember after we got back from Australia. Yeah, were you a nuisance? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have to live actually in the house. What about near the house? No. What would be the benefit? You'd be in a little kennel, I'd say. No, I don't like it. You know Snoopy? No. You do? You'd <laughs> be like him. He'd have you kenneled up. Nice. No, I like being out by the coast. Your eyes are shut. Does it matter? What? Why are my eyes shut? You said your eyes were shut. You're meditating. You can <laughs> yeah. see flashlights. So you'd be able to do it anywhere. Yeah, they're really trippy. I'm not microdosing, this is just tired. This is just your personality. So you got up too early and by now you're tired. Yeah. 3.30, still dark? Yeah. See any good sights? I'm in the story. <laughs> no. <laughs> On the web there's two routes, there's a scenic route and... Well, where'd you go? Usually the non-scenic What's route. What's the scenic route? It's down the east coast through oh, South lovely. and stuff, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. It is Maybe very I'm pretty. Drive my... It's Maybe. very nice of you. I'm doing a camper van tour of the nation. Are you coming? To... Oh, I live beside two caravan parks. Why don't, why don't I go there then? East it's, to west. Because I'm going to Wales in the first place. Going to just travel around there in a camper van. Then what I might do... I can't believe how loud that is, can you? Where are they? It sounds like they're inside my mind. <laughs> they're over there. So, um... All right, anyway, look, that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> Sign up to my Shakespeare thing on live now. It's bloody brilliant. Read my book, Revelation, <laughs> but read it by listening to it and having me talk. <laughs> Come and see me live. Sign up to my mailing list. Yeah. Learn to meditate. That's yeah. all I'm asking for. All right, yeah. Jen? You got anything to add? Any little messages? Thank you. Did I ride the mic? <laughs> that is my question, Jen. You're like Mike Ryder. <laughs> and then that should be a jingle. Jenny May Finn, Mike Ryder. <clears throat> oh, nothing like a good token mug full of coffee yeah. to sort out your self-esteem. <laughs>